Dreams of Victory. I'm Chris Mikowski, and today on the Emerging Civil War podcast, we're going to talk with author Sean Michael Chick about his new biography on PGT Beauregard in the Civil War, Dreams of Victory, part of the Emerging Civil War series, today on the Emerging Civil War podcast. There's still a lot of summertime left, and if you're planning on heading out to the battlefields to enjoy the hollowed grounds, consider getting a battlefield guided tour from one of Emerging Civil War's many talented historians. You can find out who's available to give tours of what fields by checking our website at www.emergingcivilwar.com. There's a tab along the top that says Battlefield Tours. And you can take your pick of a number of folks and a number of fields. Get out and talk with your favorite emerging Civil War historian on hallowed grounds and understand the terrain and how it plays a key role in all the stories we're telling. And also, hopefully, better appreciate the importance of battlefield preservation. Those are battlefield guided tours from Emerging Civil War on our website at www.emergingcivilwar.com. Welcome to the Emerging Civil War Podcast. I'm Chris Mikowski, and joining me from New Orleans is my friend and colleague, Sean Chick. How are you doing today, Sean? I'm okay. Rainy day here in New Orleans and all the like. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully, uh, I think every day in the summertime is a rainy day in New Orleans, isn't it? You get those cloud bursts. <laughs> not the, no, not, this was, uh, it's, it's, it's been, it's been a lot lately. Ah, ah, we could use what some send some this way in Virginia because we're dry as a bone. If you'll oh yeah, oh it's been terrible up here. So <laughs> definitely need some water. So well, I've asked Sean to join us today because he has a book out in the Emerging Civil War series recently called "Dreams of Victory: PGT Beauregard in the Civil War." And I like to say his full name, Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard, just because that's a mouthful. That's fun to say. And uh, Sean, what is it about Beauregard that that you liked enough that you wanted to spend time with him to write his biography? Oh, it's a few things. Uh... It helps, of course, him being uh, from New Orleans. And I also say it because uh, that made certain uh, attributes of his career and the way that he writes and acts make a lot of sense to me uh, because you know, he's, he's, definitely, he's definitely from a Creole world, which in, you know, is very specific to Louisiana, in particular, Southeast Louisiana, and a kind of culture and milieu where uh, being ostentatious and over the top is considered good. <laughs> to their good form, <laughs> um, you know, so modesty is not what these people, not what people are interested in. Okay. And, you know, so I thought that I could um, shed some light on that, consider him as a military commander, uh, strengths and weaknesses. And I say it because um, he has a fair number of defenders. He has a fair number of detractors. I actually think both of them overall the point, although for the most part, I'm much more positive about him as a commander, but there are definitely flaws there. And I just thought him as uh, just an interesting, fascinating person. And also, um, you know, that term dreams of victory is just this, the idea that, uh, that Beauregard, Beauregard was on the, Beauregard was on the edge, felt like he was on the edge of something greater and bigger. I mean, he was, but for the first year of the Civil War, he is the Confederacy's main military hero. Yeah. I want to talk about that for a second, but let me back up just because because you talked about you know his Creole identity, and that's a distinct thing from a Cajun identity, which a lot of people just sort of assume Louisiana. Yeah. Uh, someone's from Louisiana, they must be Cajun. Tell us a little bit about what's the difference between Creole and Cajun for folks from down there. All right. Well, the um, okay. First disclaimer: Creole means something different depending where you are in the world. Okay. It's like different if you're a linguist. In the case of Louisiana, here's the definition I use on tour that people like. A Creole is someone whose ancestor came here on this as a colony. They maintained colonial traditions and almost all of them are of French, Spanish and or West African descent. Now I say that because misconceptions are, well, to be Creole, you must be a mixed race. And like many of them were, but not all of them. 
Uh, when I grew up with, you don't hear this as much, is that to be Creole, you got to be French. No, not necessarily, although you probably are going to be French in some way. All right. And like I say, technically, you could have an Irish Creole, but there's really not going to be many of those. <laughs> and some people will say, like, well, a Creole is somebody who had to be born here when it was, this was a colony. I'm like, technically true for what the definition is used uh, to broadly talk about, uh, you know, people born in the colonies, you know, whether that be Cuba or Louisiana or anywhere else. But in the case of Louisiana, you had the group of people who were trying to maintain those colonial traditions after the Louisiana Purchase. So anyway, Cajun, though, is someone whose ancestors are from Acadia. The British took this area over at the end of the war, the Spanish succession. They wanted the Acadians to not be Catholic. And the Acadians, in response, rebelled several times. So in the 1750s, when the Seven Years' War is getting started, the decision is made that because the Acadians may rebel again, and they'd given the British a lot of problems during the war of the Austrian succession, the decision was to just deport them. And eventually allow them to make their way to Louisiana because the Spanish sell cheap farmland when they take over. And that meant they were buying land in the swamp. So Cajuns actually live south and west of the city typically, they live in the swamps. So two different parts of Louisiana, different types of French, there's differences in their cuisine and historically they don't like each other. Okay. The last thing which shall be noted is in the Civil War, they have different reactions to the Confederacy. Uh, Creoles are generally more pro-Confederate. Um, Cajun units, a lot of Cajuns chose neutrality during the war, and their units were notorious for high desertion rates, at least the ones that were stationed in Louisiana. Some of that's because they wanted to go home and protect their family because the Union Army in Louisiana uh, doesn't have the best reputation when it comes to property and, and things. Yeah. So, and, and you, you said that part of the, one of the tenets of the Creole culture is to be over the top. And that's one yeah. characteristic people really attribute to Beauregard as being this big, grandiose figure, larger than life, sweeping visions, big dreams, big ideas. Um, and how much of that is cultural affectation versus like, he was really like that? Ah. Uh. In some ways, he's more restrained than other Creoles. Okay. In some ways, <laughs> um, you know, because in terms of unit like clothing, he wore like um, fine, simple but fine tailored black suit was what he was known for. I guess we found some good photographs of that from 1867. And so I think a lot of it is a, um, a lot of it would be like a cultural affectation. Um, I mean, these Creoles they have long names. You try to send your children to. Uh, school in France. Um, one of the Creoles who actually led a Louisiana regiment under, under Lee, uh, he had attended the French military academy and was a commissioned officer with them, uh, Colonel Mandeville. Um, but anyway, so I think a lot of it is like, I think a lot of it's cultural. Like I said, he just, he just didn't seem very odd to me. It's a maximalist culture. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned that he, he was the Confederacy's great war hero for the first year of the war. Um, and, you know, he literally starts the war off with a bang in Charleston Harbor. Um, but then, you know, as you pointed out at our symposium last year, he really kind of has this long, slow fall from grace that, that happens. Tell me about Beauregard at the beginning of the war. Why is he someone everyone looks at as, as one of the shining figures of the Confederacy? A lot of it is, in his, in his case, some very good luck. Um, when he returns to Louisiana, he is not made commander of the state forces in 1861. Braxton Bragg is, because Bragg is allied to Governor Moore, and Bragg was a fire eater. And while Beauregard is definitely pro-secession, I would not call him a fire eater. You know, he was, he was saying that he didn't even think Louisiana would secede, uh, at least in 1860. So anyway, so Beauregard's available. He's not doing anything at first. He, well, he's a private in the Orleans Guard Battalion. And Davis and Leroy Pope Walker, the Secretary of War, ask him to come to Montgomery to advise on the situation at Fort Sumter. And both men are instantly impressed by him. And Beauregard, of course, had an excellent antebellum reputation. He had been uh, a member of uh, Winfield Scott's Engineer Company. He had done excellent work in the Mexican War. So the view is that Beauregard is one of the best officers in the army, you know, and he impressed the two men you really need to impress at that moment. And that gets him, along with his engineering skills, gets him the command at, um, at Fort Sumter. 
And so, and you know, he's also perfect for that. He handles the politics of the situation very well. So that instantly catapults him to here. I did want to say though, I, I don't think he had um, necessarily a, during the war, like a slow fade. In fact, I think his career fell off a cliff because of Shiloh. Okay. <laughs> and then, but then when he holds Charleston, he once again, I mean, he's not, he's not on the same level as Robert E. Lee at that point, but he once again becomes a popular hero because he holds Charleston. Yeah. So if anyway, if anything, he has a, he has a real comeback, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, but then after the war, then he has, he gets involved in scandal. We'll talk about that in a minute, but he gets involved yeah, yeah. in scandal. You talk about his ups and downs and ups and downs. Uh, quite well yeah. now i'm i'm scratching my head because you used the phrase he impressed jefferson davis and as we look at beauregard's long-term relationship with davis that, those really wouldn't be you know uh, uh, wouldn't really be a sentence we would think would, would come together yeah that, that god you could write a whole uh somebody should definitely uh, well actually you know what am i saying there's just pretty much a book about that was it lee and davis at war by woodworth Yep, yep. It's probably one of, if not Woodworth's best book. Uh, he chronicles the collapse in the relationship between Beauregard and Davis uh, pretty well in that one. But yeah, no, they, uh, he had impressed him at first and he was made a high-ranking Confederate. Remember, he was given command of the biggest army, which is the one that wins Bull Run. And it, it, it's a lot of things cause the collapse of the relationship and it declines also. Davis doesn't just one day go like, God, I hate Beauregard, but it starts off with uh, Beauregard feuding with Judah P. Benjamin, and then Davis sides with Benjamin, and then Beauregard refuses to apologize to Benjamin. So when he gets a letter from Jefferson Davis, the appellation, your friend is gone. <laughs> but he still praises his military abilities and sends him out west after Mill Springs, because with that defeat in Kentucky, uh, there's a bit of a panic in the Western Confederacy, which of course gets worse when Fort Henry and Fort Donelson fall. So. Beauregard's being sent there to boost morale and Davis sends him to Albert City Johnston. And when he sends the letter to Johnston, he doesn't say like, yeah, I'm sending this guy I don't like who doesn't have much talent. He says like, no, he's a very skilled officer and uh, I hope he will help you out in your situation, you know? And really it's when he takes that, um, or doesn't actually officially take it, but he's about to take the unasked for medical leave. That's when it's all over. Gotcha. Gotcha. So in, in the wake of Bull Run, uh, you know, Joe Johnson likes to claim a little credit. Borgard claims a little credit. Everyone just seems to remember Stonewall Jackson and forgets there were any other Confederates who were actually there. Uh, you know, how do you see all of that shake out for Beauregard as far as his reputation? You know, I, you're right with the Stonewall Jackson one, but I'd say Beauregard is pretty well up there. Okay. Definitely at the time he is, he is, um, you know, he, he, that's when he, he, that's when he really becomes like the hero of the Confederacy is after Bull Run. And of course, I mean, Stonewall Jackson got lots of praise at the time too. But in 1861, Beauregard's the one getting lavished with the praise more than anybody else. Um, it's funny you mentioned that about that. I mean, who did, uh, Beauregard uh, gave a lot of credit to Elsie. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, now there's a guy who's, contribution to bull runs forgotten <laughs> <laughs> that's twice today uh, that name has come up in conversation with and you know his name hasn't come up at all here so <laughs> how does that how does that um affect borgard's relationship with johnston who you know as we know is a, a really prickly guy they got along they, they got along pretty well in 1861 uh, Beauregard was frustrated that Johnston wasn't taking his advice to go on the attack, but their personal relations were good. And Beauregard continued to have a high opinion of Johnston, actually all the way to his, uh, to his death, he had a pretty, pretty good opinion of Johnston. Um, the real, uh, the part where they have a tense relationship, that relationship starts to deteriorate is in 1865. Johnston replaces Beauregard because Beauregard can't stop Sherman from going through South Carolina, but we all know nobody can at that point. Uh, although to be fair, Beauregard's dispositions in South Carolina were pretty poor, you know, so he made it, he made a bad situation worse and he, his health wasn't good. So I actually think Davis was very much in his rights to say we're putting Johnston in charge. Anyway, um, Beauregard sticks around, but Johnston doesn't want Beauregard around. So he sends him to the rear and says, just forward troops. And then after Bentonville, Beauregard came to the army and said, uh, do you want me here to help rally the men? And Johnston goes, no, go away. <laughs> You could just, 
You know, and then they get into a big argument at Bull Run where uh, Johnson felt Beauregard took too much credit for himself. Yeah. And that's when they start, um, that's when they have a uh, collapse in their personal relationship. Although despite their feud, Beauregard still had a high opinion or at least a good opinion of Johnson as a general. Good opinion is probably better. Yeah, that's more that's- accurate than high. Yeah, yeah. And so then he gets shipped out west to help the other Johnston. And uh, that looks promising at first, but things go awry out there as well. Yeah, well, he's he's, he's in poor health. He just had a throat operation. Um, Albert Sandy Johnston immediately starts leaning on Beauregard for advice, puts him in command in western Tennessee to oversee the concentration of troops there. And of course, there's still to this day a lot of debate about how much of the Battle of Shiloh is because of Johnston or Beauregard. Uh, Johnston is, I, I would say, is the man in command, but he is deferring a lot to his second in command. So Beauregard and his chief of staff are the ones who created, of course, the march to Shiloh the, the, and the battle plan as well, which has been heavily criticized. Um, although I did, um, I, can't, I can't do off the top of my head right now, but I did finally find Beauregard actually giving his explanations for why he attacked the way he did. Uh, and it's actually a decent explanation. I Honestly, I think the train at Shiloh was such that it was probably going to be really hard to have a good attack plan, no matter who you were. Right. You know? right. A lot of, we'll just say as a quick aside on that, a lot of people say that Albert Sidney Johnston had the better idea of attacking in columns down the road. Beauregard actually, I do, I do remember this, in his critique, he says, this could never have worked at Shiloh. The roads were too poor and the terrain was too rough. To do that, you'd have to, de- you would take forever to deploy. So that's it. That's it. He went with the waves because he said, you just line the men up in the woods and you just push forward. He said, because it'll, it'll, it's simpler. And also he commented on the fact that the men were just inexperienced as well. So, but yeah, once again, I mean, hard situation, hard terrain to attack into. Yeah. And then it seems like once Johnston is killed and Beauregard has to inherit a battle that essentially is not his own. Um, that's a tough spot for anybody to be in. How do you, how do you think he handles that? Uh, I think a lot of people, I, I, there's a lot of problems with Beauregard at Shiloh. Um, and he was, this is really where his reputation gets, um, eviscerated by a lot of people, both then and uh, today. Back then, of course, it was because of the, the lost opportunity, the idea that they had to attack one last time. And, you know, I, and, you know, most will discount that today because the train was so rough. Grant had a lot of artillery. I would say the, the other big factor is the sun's about to set, <laughs> you know, like if you're going to find a weakness in Grant's line, or if you're going to cause a panic amongst Grant's troops when you attack, which is not out of the question, the Union, Pittsburgh landing is total is chaos this time. Uh, you definitely need at least an extra hour of sunlight to pull anything off. So, um, but in one regard, I mean, very good at, at Shiloh that Beauregard, um, doesn't panic when he takes command. He actually was, had been overseeing the forwarding reinforcements. So he's able, to, um, he's able to start controlling the battle right away. And he actually acts as more of an army commander than Johnston ever did. Johnston was acting more like a division commander, really. Um, but anyway, he is heavily criticized by some people because he withdrew his troops, though, away from Grant's last position, which meant he gave up good defensive ground. The reason for that, I think, had to do with the gunboats because they were really close to where they would have had to have been. And the Confederate soldiers who, the Confederate cavalry who were um, close to Grant's army did report from what I found that they got no sleep that night. Yeah. Well, it's just, they're just like, the, the, the ships are firing overhead the whole time. Um, at the same time, Beauregard's intelligence said Buell wasn't coming. He got a report that night that said, Buell is not coming. He's going to Alabama. False intelligence report. Uh, the the uh, Gilmer, who was the engineer with Beauregard, when he heard the uh, transports bringing Buell's army in, he assumed those were transports taking Grant's army away because of the intelligence they received. You know, um, if you can, one thing I would criticize Beauregard is they didn't have enough cavalry actually following Buell's movements. That's a major reconnaissance failure. Uh, it also helped that actually one one little quick aside about that one because you know, I'm doing so much Shiloh research. Uh, Buell also made effective use of his cavalry on his march to Pittsburgh Landing. Something I just found in some research I've done. He ordered numerous probes, uh, ten to twenty miles away from the main column, to flush Confederates away. So the rebels who even were 
paying attention to them, start to lose contact. So very good job, Buell. <laughs> you know, uh, but anyway, yeah, it just, I, I'd say this though. I think what, where um, Beauregard's really good at Shiloh is on the second day. He orders a series of attacks that are turned back because he doesn't know Buell's there. He eventually figures out Buell is there. And now you have to retreat. One of the things Beauregard did very well on the second day of Shiloh was rallying troops, organizing units of stragglers, ordering counterattacks, and in some cases leading counterattacks, which are very important for getting the army away in a better shape than any right to. Yeah. He exhibits a lot of personal leadership on that second day and really kind of oh, holds yeah, that yeah. army together. Yeah, yeah and, and honestly, a lot of the Confederate generals, uh, you know, Shiloh is one of only two battles where Hardy actually leads an attack, personally. <laughs> yeah, I so just chuckle because because there's so much about Hardy that just never quite lives up to this up to the hype. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the um, this Missouri guy called him the bravest officer I ever saw was Hardy on the second day of Shiloh. Huh? But he does. He goes with Missouri regiment and, and attacks right with them, and he doesn't do that again until Bentonville. <laughs> um, <laughs> Polk, Cheatham, oh God, Bragg. Uh, I, I mean, people, people always talk about like Bragg being hated by his soldiers and you know, it's Shiloh, people in Gibson's brigade really hate them. But I've actually found some positive letters because Bragg was, especially in the second day, like under fire with artillery batteries, uh, rallying troops. So uh, the Confederate generals at Shiloh, um, there's a lot of criticisms you can make of them, but I'm at, when it gets really desperate in those last few hours, they are out there in front holding the line together. Cheatham even mans a cannon at one point. And, and so Borgard gets the army back to Corinth successfully. Um, I think probably helped by the very slow pursuit of Halleck. But, but I think then we sort of get into maybe what, what is Borgard's toughest time of the war. You know, he's, he's, he's essentially blamed for losing this battle. And then he's got this illness that he's dealing with and he, vanishes from his post without leave tell, tell us a little bit about this period that he's kind of wrestling through uh well he's he's got an impossible task at corinth uh halleck concentrates about every soldier he can in the area and we can make a lot of criticisms of halleck i i'm not a big fan of halleck at all but his approach to corinth is perfect if you just want to take the town mm-hmm. Like, there's not a moment where Beauregard can look at Halleck's lines and go like, oh, those are poorly entrenched and the flanks exposed. It doesn't exist. Uh, there's one attack that is made at Farmington, uh, which was when the Federals were coming up. So that was kind of the chance they had, but Van Dorn screwed that up. So Beauregard's forced to, to abandon Corinth. Uh, the retreat, by the way, is masterfully done. Uh, you know, trains going in and out of time, soldiers cheering. Uh, the frontline pickets weren't even told they were getting out of Corinth until like the very last minute. So there was almost no indication in the Union lines that they were getting out. Uh, so, and I also mention this because, you know, people are like, well, it's an evacuation. I'm like, yeah, yeah, evacuations aren't victories, right? But compare that to every Joseph E. Johnston evacuation. <laughs> you know, there's an entire book about that, uh, that my old professor Summers reviewed called, it's like called the Joe Johnston Breaker of the Iron Horse. And all it was was about Johnston's abuse of the railroads and how many times he evacuated and just left supplies behind. <laughs> um, or God hood at Atlanta. That's another botched evacuation. Right. You know, so it, it, it really, really one of the, one of the best overseen that I've, that I've seen. Anyway, so he doesn't actually take the medical leave. He just tells Davis, I'm about to, with a pit and ask. So then Davis fires him. He's in Mobile for a little bit, recovering. Uh, there was talk about sending the Trans-Mississippi, talk about having command at Mobile. Ultimately, the people in Charleston asked for Beauregard. Beauregard agrees to it. And Davis, with a little bit of reluctance, sends them to Charleston. But it should be noted that Davis, even at that moment, he hates Beauregard, but he would say he is a talented engineer. He never took that away from him. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, it, Charleston is where his reputation is rebuilt. How important is Charleston to the Confederacy at that point when Borgard returns? Yeah, it's, I mean, it is the, the cradle of secession. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the Federals are making it a, one of their major prongs for their offensive at the time, right? I mean, because if you think about it, I mean, I, I say that it's definitely the smallest of the five, mm-hmm. right? But 
there's not inconsiderable resources. 10th Corps is large. Also, their best warships are not being sent to go help out Farragut against Port Hudson. They're being sent to go take Charleston. And, you know, in many ways, as an overall campaign, Charleston really is Beauregard at his very best. Uh, for one thing, like, for instance, with the ironclads, the, the Union wanted to do what they did at New Orleans, you know, run past the fort. But Beauregard said, no, no, we have plunging fire here. We can actually take out the ironclads. And they did. They, uh, they sank one of the monitors. Um, so, you know, it, it, you know, Beauregard actually, for the mo mostly predicted what his enemies were going to do as well and took all the right precautions. Um, so just, just a masterfully done campaign. And, you know, certainly, be, as you say, as the creator of secession, it's got a highly symbolic value to it. So, uh, you know, being able to defend that and hold on to it, I think, is, is a real key. How, what is it specifically that that rebuilds his reputation there? I mean, just these these, you know, great small performances. Does he work the political scene? How does that all come together for him? You got two in that regard. You mentioned the political scene. Beauregard has a lot of political allies, which is actually one of the things that also led Davis to start distrusting him is that a lot of Davis's political opponents like Beauregard okay. back, even back in 1861. So he, um, that, I think that was also helping to make Davis a little paranoid. Anyways, um, he does have a lot of political connections that helps. And like we said, cradle of secession, important city. If it fell, the union could then, you know, make inroads into South Carolina, uh, it was shut down as a port, but the blockade at Charleston gets pretty tight. But then everything just shifts to Wilmington anyway. I don't actually think the blockade of Charleston, not that that's not important, but it actually doesn't seem to have hurt Southern imports that much from what I read. But I think the big one is that everyone else is a loser in 1863. Pemberton, Lee, Bragg, Johnston, they all lose. Some of them in dramatic fashion. <laughs> right. <laughs> Very dramatic fashion. Um, you know, I, it, and even a place like Port Hudson, where the Federals suffered heavy losses there, but the place still falls. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. Ch Charleston holds. It's it's the only successful uh, Confederate campaign of 1863 outside of maybe Chancellorsville, I guess. Hmm. You know, or yeah. I guess if you want to count the uh, initial defenses, defense of Vicksburg, you know, before because you know Vicksburg could be looked at as a series of campaigns, right? You know, once Lee, once uh, once Grant got across the river, sort of a different ball game there. But certainly yeah. they held out until then. Yeah. So, so as the pendulum begins to swing against the Confederacy there in '63, Beauregard's the one guy who is continuing to be successful. You know, what would you consider to be some of his high points as he kind of rides out that next stretch of his his campaign or of his uh, career? I mean, you were talking like post Charleston, right? Just yeah, as he as he kind of finishes out through Charleston, I mean, he's involved with plans for the Hunley. Oh know. yeah, yeah, yeah. They got, they got, that's the thing too. I mean, he was going to experiment. Of course, he had the Hunley, had other Rams. When he was actually in France after the war, deploying the third, had a personal audience with him to talk about the Hunley and the Spear Rams. The I'm sorry, the uh, the uh, these kind of like um, you know ships are supposed to like you'd ram into the thing and then. Um, put an explosive there but these were like not submersibles uh so there's a lot of experimentation Beauregard himself was an inventor and an engineer so that's in, in his wheelhouse mm -hmm. uh, of course battery wagner fell but the union took horrendous casualties and fort sumter still holds defiant right. at the end uh so yeah so that all leads of course to um him actually getting a, a major field command in 1864 uh and uh, defeating uh, butler in the bermuda hundred campaign which I think was masterful uh, when he gets up into Virginia and, you know, through Bermuda hundred, his first couple of days at Petersburg. Uh, he does some exceptional work there that tends to get forgotten about. Why is that? You know, well, I mean, it is like a, I mean, the Bermuda hundred, Bermuda hundred attack that, that grants ordering is not merely a diversion. It's a major offensive huh. push. Right. But yeah, I always like to say um, if Lee, Jackson, Grant, and Sherman aren't there. Your chances of hearing about it are greatly reduced. You know, I mean, yeah. the, the entire military narrative of Ken Burns' Civil War features those four men in almost everything. <laughs> uh, you know, so it, it's just, um, you know, he, he's not going up against Union commanders that people actually like, that are particularly beloved. I mean, if anybody loves Butler, it's going to be for his politics 
Uh, not for his military acumen, right? And didn't help that, of course, Davis downplayed Bermuda 100. In the case of Petersburg, even looked into having a court of inquiry drawn up, which is absolutely ridiculous when you think about what Beauregard did there. Yeah. I mean, and like, you know, he holds the line the first couple of days and, and Lee is slow to react at Petersburg yeah. and doesn't be, doesn't believe him. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe I should shift some reinforcements down there. Tell me about tell me about Beauregard at Petersburg, because I think that's a, a, a extremely overlooked portion of the Petersburg story, which, of course, itself is overlooked. But. Yeah. Well, as uh, you know, Grant and Meade managed to detach away from Lee's front. And Lee has two things. One, he's hung up on Richmond, understandably so. And Lee at first thought that Grant was not going to cross the James, but kind of do like a short march and then move along the north bank of the James. In addition, Grant's cavalry screen is very effective at keeping Lee's cavalry away. And also, most of Lee's cavalry is off fighting Sheridan at Trevelyan Station. This, by the way, though, has a bad effect on Grant's army because when they get to Petersburg, they don't have enough cavalry. You know, so anyways, so, you know, he manages to grant and Meade cross the James and the army starts shifting towards Petersburg. Before that, the 18th Corps led by William F. Smith um, with that confusing nickname Baldy because he's not actually bald. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, goes uh, across that city point roughly and then marches on Petersburg. Now, Beauregard is not really in command on the first day. It's actually Henry Wise. And, uh, it's, you know, it's definitely it's by far Henry Wise's finest moment as a general. Uh-huh. You know, but on the second day, Beauregard takes whatever troops can scrape together. And keep in mind this too, Lee did send him some men, but he sent him the troops he'd already borrowed from him. Um, he'd already borrowed from him after he had won at Warebottom Church, the last battle of the uh, 300 campaign. So Lee was just kind of like returning the men to him. But after that, you're right, slow to react overall. And the this, yeah, Beauregard, I mean, he's, he's doing what he does best, you know, rallying troops, overseeing defensive positions. This is one of the most brilliant things he does, though. He realizes at the end of June 16th, even though they, they, they threw back the Federals and when they made a um, late afternoon attack, he realizes that he needs a second, he needs no defensive line. So his reserve brigade, militia, and slaves build the line right outside Petersburg. June 17th, the Federals almost win the day. There's one particular attack led by Jacob Gould, who was commanding Ledley's division. They put a lodgement in there. And Beauregard realizes, the Federals attack me tomorrow, it's over. I don't have the best defensive line. My troops are getting tired now. So in the middle of the night has the army retreat to the, to the to the backup line. Uh, there's almost no problems with the retreat, by the way. The Confederates don't lose artillery. I mean, some men get lost, they're right, somebody's going to, but the units arrive intact and then immediately start digging in. So when the Federals advance in the morning, they just find empty Confederate lines. And then, by the way, in the morning, they attacked all at once. And if you imagine, if they had done something like that on June 17th, they might have just broken right through. But no. Yeah. So, you know, Beauregard does, I mean, think of it as a daring night retreat to this backup defensive line. And that backup defensive line is going to hold, is going to be occupied by Confederates until April 2nd, 1865. Uh, so just that's an impressive tactical maneuver there. Uh, one of the, I think one of the most masterful of the war. And, you know, um, yeah, I think Beauregard at Petersburg is easily one of the top 10 or top five performances of an army commander in the Civil War. But I'll say this, though, you mentioned it being forgotten. My argument about Petersburg is because a lot of people, you know, pro-North or pro-South, lost cause, just cause, everyone to put it, you know, they worship Grant or they worship Lee, and neither guy looks good at Petersburg. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll point out that you've got a a wonderful series that you did for the blog about those opening uh, actions at Petersburg that we collected in our uh, Grant versus Lee hardcover, oh, yeah. um, which I, I'm just fantastic. And, you know, you've written about that in a book of your own. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you really, I think, justly give Beauregard his due. Um, but, he, but he seems to drop off the radar screen after that, uh, since Lee shows up on the scene. And what happens to Beauregard then? Oh, now he's Lee's second in command. Yeah, I mean, running theme with this guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> so now he's Lee's second in command. Lee? 
Lee trusts him. Lee, Lee thought very well of Beauregard, constantly advised Davis to put in command of the Army of Tennessee, constantly. Uh, and so he effectively kind of acts as Lee's second in command and commander of what, what you might call Fourth Corps, or what would Black, I think, it wasn't later dubbed Fourth Corps. The one Anderson. Uh, yeah, and then, uh, well, actually, then Anderson gets put in charge of it once uh, Beauregard shifts away. So Beauregard at Petersburg, he doesn't really want to be under Lee. Uh, he has, and, he had, and, and by the way, Lee had tried to make him his second in command even before all of this. So Lee had wanted Beauregard under him or somewhere else. Anyway, so he made an attack on June 23rd with two brigades in an attempt to try to turn uh, to try to like uh, turn the flank of the federal lines, it fails. It's an overly complicated attack. It's not. It's not one of Beauregard's best moments, and he is at the crater. He's the, he actually arrives before Lee does, but Lee arrived very soon after. So Beauregard is just a spectator at the Battle of the Crater. Mm. And then while Lee was fighting at uh, Fusil's Mill, Beauregard is the commander at the Battle of Globe Tavern, and. Globe Tavern has to be the most frustrating battle for Beauregard because he inflicts heavy casualties on the Federals, but he ultimately cannot push them off the Weldon Railroad. And his last attack on them is actually where the Confederates lost well over half the men they actually did lose in the battle. Wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but the Globe Tavern, I mean, once again, Federals suffered very heavy losses. And like a lot of Petersburg battles at that time, the Confederates were able to launch flank attacks that bagged lots of prisoners and sent lots of guys running. So the railroad ultimately falls. Davis is enraged. And Lee essentially says, yeah, I think Beauregard should go somewhere else. He doesn't really want to be here. And the initial thing was he was being sent to Wilmington to oversee the defenses there, or he was going to be. And then Hood lost Atlanta. Uh, several men, in particular Richard Taylor, tried to get Davis to put Beauregard in command. Davis refuses. He's going to keep Hood and then made Beauregard the theater commander. But it was different than with Joseph E. Johnston. When Joseph E. Johnston was the Western theater commander in 1862-63, Davis told Johnston, you can do whatever you want. In fact, you can even command an army if you want to. And Davis actually wanted Johnston to remove Bragg. Right. Twice. Yeah. But Johnston wouldn't do it for many reasons, right? Beauregard does not have that latitude. He's not told, oh, you could take for over for Hood anytime you want to. He's essentially told, no, you're the overall theater commander. You oversee logistics and communications, and you are to advise Hood on his movements, which amounts to not much of anything until Sherman is marching towards Savannah, and then Beauregard and Hardy have the thankless task of trying to stop him, which is nigh impossible. <laughs> you know, so yeah, he um it's uh, you know, I, I, I mean, Davis had a Davis had a tough situation. The Confederates, their talent in the upper level wasn't that great, right. and he had to deal with a lot of contentious personalities, uh, arrogant men, some of them who own other human beings, which does not make you a humble person. Yeah. And uh, so I, you know, some will be like, "Oh, why Davis do this person?" I'm like, he's in a tough spot, but I will say keeping Hood after Atlanta falls and not putting Beauregard in command who, had, who, who outside of Globe Tavern has won a series of battles in 1864 it just seems like the height of stupidity to me. Yeah. Or in pettiness. Yeah, pettiness seems, you know, that kind of seems to be a characteristic in that relationship by that point, you know. And, um, okay. you know, Davis almost looked for reasons to not advance Beauregard just for that sheer reason of pettiness. Yeah, yeah, and their mutual pettiness. Like I said, I, I usually I blame Beauregard for the initial falling out, and Beauregard did his share of petty things. Uh, yeah. uh. So how does he finish out the war? We know of Lee's surrendered Appomattox, and Joe Johnston at Bennett Place, and Richard Taylor. Yeah. You know, Beauregard's the one big key person we never seem to really hear much about. Well, he's he's present for uh, Bennett Place. He doesn't handle the negotiations, but I think he's I believe he's present there for when they they finalize it. Um, and he did, he does, he is involved in that last meeting between Davis and Johnston, where Davis is like, if we turn our people out, they'll keep fighting. Johnston's like, they're melting like snow. Uh, and, uh, you know, after Johnston gives his statement about this war is hopeless, we need to give up. Davis looked at Burgard and said, what do you think? And he said, I concur. And they said, and that's when Davis slumped. <laughs> uh, 
So yeah, I, I mean, by virtue of just being the second in command of Johnston, he's not as intimately involved in those surrenders, but he plays an important role in um, the uh, the saga of Jeff Davis in his last weeks running, yeah. running away, you know? Uh, and then he and the uh, Louisiana officers and soldiers made a long trek from North Carolina to New Orleans. And how does he finish out his days? Is he lauded as a war hero? Does he kind of go into quiet hiding? You know, what does he do? No, nah, definitely not quiet hiding. <laughs> he's got one. Of the, he's got one of the most interesting post-war careers, and one that both hurts and helps him, depending on who you're talking to. Uh, politically, he hated the Republican Party, but he also uh, was opposed. He also was for equal voting and civil rights for Black people. He's opposed to Reconstruction era you know, uh, violence and mm -hmm. corruption. Uh, so, but the thing is politically, he's super inept. It's one of the reasons why Davis was able to outmaneuver him. And so his forays into politics in Louisiana were mostly a failure, except that he backed some racial moderates in 1876, like Randall Gibson and helped them get elected. Outside of that fails in politics, but he's, he's very bad at it. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> Oversaw two railroads, one of which, of course, is today the famous New Orleans streetcar, although he did not introduce the streetcar, but he did introduce a prototype of the streetcar we have today. Mm. Uh, very successful in the railroad stuff. And uh, one thing that really hurt his reputation with fellow Southerners was attaching his name to Louisiana Lottery and doing the drawings mm -hmm. because the lottery is corrupt. Everybody knows Beauregard is not involved in the corruption, but that means that he is either stupid or he knows what the corruption doesn't care because of his paycheck. He's, of, he, he's like the celebrity host of the lottery, but it's, it's <laughs> such a bad prospect overall that his name gets besmirched because of the association. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, he's doing it to get money yeah. for his family. When, and he doesn't die like really wealthy, but he dies well off. Yeah. You know, leaves quite a bit of money to them. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, and there's a lot of also, there's just a lot of uh, personal tragedy. Um, his his daughter, his first wife had died giving birth to his daughter. She died at that time. He didn't really approve of her husband. Um, his granddaughter died. The other one lived, though. By the way, lived till 1970. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the, she lived a long time. I found her picture in an issue of Confederate veteran. Um, and yeah, there's just, so there's, there's some personal tragedy. He, he also started to pine for the, uh, Creole Louisiana that he saw rapidly fading away before him. Yeah. Um, thing too was he got involved in those, a lot of those really nasty arguments between generals. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, a lot yeah. of he got yeah he got involved in a lot of those, um, and I think that was some of the things of Confederate generals is that you know with the Union, a lot of the people who would uh, we would be more of a detractors for Grant and Sherman didn't publish. Don't you wish we had Rosecrans memoirs? I yeah, do. Right. George yeah. Thomas. George Thomas apparently died at his desk writing a rebuttal to somebody's attack on his actions at Bull at, at Nashville. So Thomas is dead. Rosecrans doesn't write memoirs. Buell wrote um, an article, a pretty petty article <laughs> about Shiloh, but he didn't write memoirs either. But those Confederates, man, they all write memoirs. <laughs> right, right. So he, very public feuds with Joseph e. Johnston, Jefferson Davis, um, also William Preston Johnston, Albert E. Johnston's son. Mm. And he also tried to, of course, write an entire series of articles. Uh, Beauregard also believed that his defense of Petersburg was his finest hour. Mm. And he really tried to make that argument to people and it never stuck for the reason I think, you know, right. makes right. Lee and Grant look bad. So neither side wants to really reference the battle. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it, yeah, I, I think those petty feuds probably didn't help him. But as one aside, his memoirs are kind of weird and that they're not particularly well written, and he co-wrote them with Alfred Roman, who was on his staff. Mm -hmm. They're not like they're not as well written as like Sherman or anything, but they're also a lot more reliable than most other memoirs because yeah. he, he collected a lot of reports and he wrote a lot of letters to get recollections from the from um, from the various battles. 
Mm-hmm. And I found that, I mean, not everything, but I found overall in the Shiloh research in particular, I'm like, actually, Beauregard's memoirs are corroborated for the most part by what I'm seeing in the official reports and recollections, you know? So it, it's kind of weird. It, the memoirs are not particularly well written. I mean, they got some good parts, but they're not the best read. They can be very petty, but also one of your better sources mm. wow. of, of that variety. Cause you always gotta be careful with memoirs. Yeah, sure, sure, yeah. sure. So having spent all this time with him to write Dreams of Victory, what did you come away with that helped you better appreciate him in some way? Hmm. You mean like something that I didn't know before that made me think better of him or something? Yeah, yeah. or maybe not necessarily better, but you, you understood him better in a particular way. Yeah, um... That's really hard. Uh, in some ways, he was one of the good things about Beauregard and Sherman as well is uh, they don't hold back, you know. And some of the opinions I'd had of him, just especially when I was studying Petersburg, I was like, wait a second, I was told this guy was average at best, and he's pulled off this great defensive victory. So there's got to be more here. So in many ways, that's many ways the origins of what at least being interested in writing a book like this yeah okay and um i i think that um i think one thing i appreciated was that so for instance t harry williams his biography of beauregard is very good but there was something he did where he talked about all these attempts that beauregard made to command another army. Like he offered his services to Napoleon III during the Franco-Prussian War. Um, he was, there was an offer for him to lead troops in Cuba. But one of the reasons why is because he would have had to have fought his chief of staff, Thomas Jordan. <laughs> so it looked sketchy, right? Oh yeah. There was an offer to put him in Egypt, which actually uh, somebody, I think uh, one of Benjamin Butler's relatives actually blocked from happening. The Romanian army, the Japanese army made an offer or at least there was some awesome. consideration. And Williams just kind of casted these as a sign of uh, just Beauregard's mercurial nature and his quest for military glory, but ultimately choosing to stay in Louisiana. And I think what I appreciate more was two things. One, usually when he was thinking about going elsewhere, it's because of financial and personal and political frustrations in Louisiana. And that's the keep in mind, Beauregard feels very conflict. I, that's, I appreciate more what the complexities, that's what I would say. I appreciate more the complexities of his life post-war. Yeah, okay. And I think of, I think very few Civil War generals had a more complicated post-war experience. One that simultaneously he's able to do things that makes his reputation better than say Longstreet, who his main sin is he backs the Republicans, you know? (laughs) But, you know, at the same time, it's bad enough to where, you know, your reputation is hurt by the Louisiana lottery. You do deal with these personal tragedies. You see this Creole way of life that you grew up with just disappearing. And so uh, the, 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 post, the, the war was frustrating enough. The post-war in many ways was even worse. And I think I appreciated more that difficult situation he was in uh, after the conflict. And that, that ties into the thing with, with him like saying like, oh, maybe I'll go to Japan. He thinks that kind of stuff when something happens that he really doesn't like. Yeah. Okay. She did. There was a bit of that in the 1850s too with him, but not nearly as much because at that point he's a young officer on the up and up, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's on the rise. He still has some potential and there's a lot to look at. Yeah. He thought about going to Nicaragua to fight under um, uh, William Walker. Yeah. That, that'd have been a dumb idea. <laughs> 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 oh, yeah. God. There was a guy, Pressifar Smith, I think it was his name. He wrote him a letter saying, yeah, I think, I think Walker is like a bad person and you'd just be wasting your time. And everything you describe about Walker, I'm like, that's actually pretty much what William Walker was like. Yeah, right, right. So anything I haven't, uh, the, the, I haven't asked you that, that I should have or something, any, any final comments? Uh, and none that really, uh, none that jump out at me this, uh, none that jump out at me this uh, very moment. You know? Very good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah, sorry, I don't have anything else profound to say, I guess. That's, that's all right. You've given us lots to think about. And I think that's the important thing about Beauregard, who is, is one of those personalities that, you know, maybe we think we know or we know the caricature, but 
your book really dives into those complexities and gives us lots to think about and, and to reconsider. Maybe this one. Um, this is Beauregard probably serves in in some ways as a good cautionary tale, in that he is obviously very intelligent and talented. But that's not going to decide everything. You know. Uh, that maybe if he had been a better subordinate, because he's, he's a bad subordinate, you know, because he, he's, a lot of times say it's because he's the smartest guy in the room doesn't mean you're going to be easy to work with. In fact, it could be a lot of, it could be a major problem. Yeah. And uh, I think it's, it shows, and his career does show in many ways, the limits of raw talent, but also how far raw, raw talent can bring you as well. I mean, number of great military victories and regardless of all that he played a really important role in the mexican-american war mm -hmm. in fact you can make a case that was like the high point of his life you know that's a lot of downhill from there <laughs> <laughs> well you know i mean there's always gonna be some like high point right but yeah it's just yeah you can appreciate more of a, a tragic part of life as well you know unfulfilled potential dreams of victory yeah. yeah, where I got the quote from was the uh, uh, SAS Bradford, who's much harder in Beauregard than I am, but I think he nailed that about him, that to look at him as look at somebody about uh, you know, dreams unrealized. Right, right. Well, the book is called Dreams of Victory, PGT Beauregard and the Civil War. Sean Chick, thanks so much for being with us today. I appreciate the chance to chat. Yeah, you're welcome. Love to be here. So thank you so much for being with us here on the Emerging Civil War Podcast. I'm Chris Mikowski. We will see you online and on the battlefield. And as we wrap up, let's remember to thank our engineer, Jackson Mikowski, for piecing things together for us. And let's thank the Second South Carolina String Band for contributing our theme music. You can find them online at civilwarband.com. And don't forget to join us online at emergingcivilwar.com. More than 30 of us contributing free content to the blog every single day, trying to keep people connected with what we see as America's defining event. And we want you to be part of that conversation. So join us online at emergingcivilwar.com. And finally, as a reminder, if you like what you hear, please share and like our podcast. Please let people know so that you can do your part to help us spread the gospel of the Civil War. For Sean Michael Chick, I'm Chris Mikowski on the Emerging Civil War podcast. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you online and on the battlefield. <laughs>